As we begin this morning, I'd like to read a brief passage from the 33rd chapter of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, You who are far away, hear what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Father, we know that our God is a consuming fire. And Lord, we know that that fire burns out the dross, the sin, the worthless things out of our lives. And Lord, we know that that fire will purify us, but it will destroy the unrighteous. Father, I pray that we will always seek to draw close to you and to allow that fire of God through his word to cleanse our lives and to make us what we ought to be in the eyes of the Almighty. And Father, I pray that your, your fire of cleansing will move through the whole church uh, in this country and abroad and that you might purify your people that they will stand in stark contrast to the world. Lord, we deal with so much compromise. So many are, are questioning whether uh, the things of the world should not be adequately a part of their lives and, and uh, don't have any concern with that. We pray, Father, that your fire will remove that dross. Father, I pray that as we look at this rather um, uncomfortable chapter of Scripture, that you will teach us the lessons that will help us to better understand the work of God and the fact that God presents it as it is, that you give us the raw truth so that we might better understand who you are and, and who we are as human beings without you and that somehow through this our lives will better reflect the glory of God and we will be the light and the salt that you've called us to be. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we return to the 13th chapter of uh, 2 Samuel, let me again highlight two of the overarching truths demonstrated by this passage. And I outlined them last time, I emphasized them last time, but let me just recapitulate here. First, we have the warning given to us in James, which says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This could not better be illustrated than in the life of this man, Amnon, that we're looking at uh, last week and, and we'll look at again this week in the 13th chapter of 2 Samuel. Secondly, we have the warning that we also looked at last week given to us in Galatians where we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. And Solomon gave us a kind of an Old Testament version of that when he wrote, They shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 31. 
And so as we look at further at this passage and we look at the actual uh, tragedy of uh, the event here this morning, I, I hope that these truths will, will always be there and we will always understand this, particularly so that we can reach out and touch other lives as God might bring them across our path. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter, first, you know, 2 Samuel, yes, we are in 2 Samuel, chapter 13, beginning at verse 7. Then David sent to the house of Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom, that I might eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do, you not, do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her, since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. I think one of the things that we find to be true about Scripture is it paints life in its, as it, it really is. It doesn't gloss over the raw areas of life. Some people are offended by that. But that just happens to be the way it is. It's just like some people are offended by the blood of Christ. And so they have taken the blood of Christ out of the gospel. And they have church where they talk about nothing but the love of God. And there's no, no, no emphasis on justice, uh, no emphasis upon sin and repentance and all those kinds of things. And I, I think that just uh, creates an inuring of the mind and of the heart. And people blithely go on through life and pass into eternity to face a God who basically said, I never knew you. I never knew you. These things are, these passages are not pleasant, but they help us to understand the depravity that really exists in the hearts of all of us, but save for what God has done in our hearts. As, as we looked last week at the first portion of this, we discovered that Amnon was David's eldest son. He was heir apparent to the throne, and he had a half-sister whose name was Tamar. Tamar means palm. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty name. It, it was a name kind of an endearing name because a palm was always a, a, a sign of, of refreshment and, uh, and uh, peace because palms usually floated over the, uh, and float, but waved in the wind, you know, over the oases in the desert. And, and the palms provided shade and the palms indicated water and the palms provided fruit, the dates that came from the palms. And so Tamar, a pretty name for apparently a very lovely and beautiful girl, uh, but her brother had some rather evil intention toward her. David, um, when, when, uh, when Amnon was, was depressed because he couldn't have his way with this lady because she was living isolated from him, his friend and cousin, remember we pointed him out last time, said, well, you know, I've got a plan. Why don't you pretend like you're sick 
and your dad will come and, and you'll tell your dad that you're sick and you really need some comfort and the best comfort you can think of is for your sister, your half-sister, to come and feed you some of her special cakes and give you some comfort. And, and David would think, oh, sure, why not? You know, uh, that's what uh, family's for. And so that's what we're reading about in this passage. David obliged his son. He heard, listened to him, not, not seeing through the fact that he was faking. He wasn't sick at all. And so David sent a message to Tamar's house. Now the word translated out of the Hebrew here for house can mean household, it can mean rooms. And so I, I, it's possible that she lived in a separate house uh, structure, separate from other structures, maybe on a royal compound of some sort. I don't think she lived in a house out in the city. Certainly the royal children wouldn't be living out amongst the general population. It could also mean that uh, the royal palace was large and there were different apartments within and that she lived in one of the sets of apartments within uh, the royal palace, possibly with her mother, but more likely with other virgin princesses, other daughters of David by his many wives, and that as long as they were still virgins, they may have lived in, in common. We don't know. The details are not given for us. But whatever is the case, David sent a message, message to her asking her to uh, go to her sick brother and prepare for him some of her special bread. Now, we're not told anything. We're implying this from the passage that because he asked this and because David obliged, she must have been known uh, for a particular quality of bread that she made. As we noted last time, the word for cake is an unusual word here. It's only used three times in Scripture. It's not the common word for cake. And most believe it to be some kind of a pancake-like bread that she was famous for. And maybe she had a particularly caring spirit, and, and people knew her as someone who ministered to others. And so it just seemed uh, perfectly right to David. He had no suspicion that his son was pretending to be sick and was, had some rather inappropriate thoughts about his sister. Now, the scripture seems to indicate that Tamar went willingly to, to fulfill this obligation. She got the word from her father. She was willing to go do this. There's no evidence of hesitation on her part. I think she had no suspicion. I don't think that she was at all aware of the fact that her eldest half-brother, heir to the throne, was actually um, developing this powerful lust for her. I don't, I don't think she had any suspicion whatsoever. And so when she arrived, she found him lying in bed in the food preparation area of his apartments or house or whatever the actual living situation uh, was. One of the reasons we don't know uh, what the living situations were, not only the fact the scripture doesn't make any de description of it, is because we're talking about 3,000 years ago. And Jerusalem has been one of the most ravaged cities of history. It's been conquered over and over and over again, and it's been destroyed several times. In fact, if you go there today just to, to look at the actual sites, or I should say the actual level where Jesus would have walked. I mean, people walk down the Via Dolorosa today and go to the seven stations of the cross. But, but you're walking 30, 40, 50 feet above where Jesus actually walked because the whole city was destroyed in 70. I mean, it was flattened. And, and they just simply build on top of the rubble. And as a result, they have actually, they've dug down and there are places where you can walk around. You can look down the 30 feet or so to the Roman level of Jerusalem. And so you know you're not walking where Jesus literally walked uh, when you walk down the Via Dolorosa. But, and of course, there, it was destroyed before that. So 
archaeologists can't even uncover and say, well, this is what David's palace looked like. And I mean, if you go there, there's a place called the Citadel of David. It's not the Citadel of David in reality. It's just what they call it there uh, today. And so uh, we, we can only assume what the actual living arrangements uh, were. So she came to his, we'll call it house. And here he was lying in, we'll call it kitchen, the food preparation area. I mean, obviously it wasn't like ours in, in any sense of the word, but there obviously was the cooking capacity there so that this grain could be cooked into cakes. It, it could be that she was flattered that here he is, the heir to the throne, wanted her to come and make her cakes and, and minister to him. So, you know, I, I don't know that she was naive, but I don't think that she in any way suspected his obsession and was possibly even flattered that she could minister to the heir to the throne. With him lying there when she arrived, looking very, very distressed, he probably was a good actor. <laughs> this big pain, you know, he was in and all this. Please fix your cakes for me. Uh, you know. Whether these pancakes had some kind of special healing quality, who knows? Probably not. But she sat about uh, preparing these, this bread. When she had finished, the scripture tells us that she poured the cakes out into a bowl or a basket or, or some serving uh, device and brought them to him, but he refused to eat. <laughs> that probably took her back for a moment. <coughs> I mean, just acting like a spoiled brat. At that point, we read in scripture that Amnon commanded all of the servants to leave the quarters. Now he was prince. And so there would have been bodyguards and maids and various individuals within his apartment complex. And, and so they were all ordered to leave. This apparently caused Tamar no concern. And this indicates how inconceivable it was to her that Amnon could have any plan of doing her any harm. It didn't even enter her mind, it would appear. Well, when he invited her then, to bring her little cakes with her and come into his bedroom to feed him, she complies, indicating she is absolutely and totally unsuspecting. I mean, she's, he's her half-brother. They have the same father. She had not a clue. No thought it like that entered her mind. So we can imagine how shocking it must have been to her when she came to him to feed him the bread, and he grabbed her by the arm, rather forcefully for a sick man, and drew her to himself and demanded that she have sexual intercourse with him right then and there. What's interesting is he called her my sister. What did he really mean by that? I mean, she was his sister. Was he flaunting that relationship at this point? Possibly. He's a vile man. It's also possible that he's using the word in the, in the sense of darling, my darling, because Solomon does, does that in the, in the Song of Solomon, where the king is, is talking about the beautiful one that he is bringing in as his bride, and he calls her my sister, my bride. And that should not be interpreted as Solomon actually taking one of his own sisters. Uh, the word sister is being used as an endearing term, as like my darling, rather than literally sister. So we don't know which way he was using it, but he was correct in calling her my sister because that's what she was. Well, what we do discover here is that Tamar resists vehemently. She emphatically cries out, no, my brother, 
No, my brother. Now, when she says my brother, she means you're my brother. We have the same father. What are you doing here? She's emphasizing their close blood relationship. And then this, this, is, this is supported by what she says next. Such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. She's not just talking about rape. She's talking about incest. And I think in doing so, to whatever degree she understood Scripture, we can only uh, suppose. But she is supported by Scripture. And let me read a couple of passages. And these may be, this is probably what she was referring to. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9, we read this. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter, you know, it defines them here, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. In verse 11, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. And in the 20th chapter of Leviticus, verse 17, there is a man, if there is a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. His, he bears his guilt. The passage uses the word disgrace, which she uses in her uh, protestation to... Amnon. The word, uh, the word disgraceful literally comes from the word, the Hebrew word Nebalah, and it means foolish. Do not do this disgraceful, do not do this foolish thing. And she will use the shortened version to refer to him in a moment. She will say Nabal. <laughs> she will say, do not be one of the Nabals in Israel. And I don't think it's accidental that she uses that term. I think she very well knew the story of her father and her father's dealing with the man Nabal, who was the fool of the land, remember, and how the man Nabal uh, ended up perishing because of his foolish action relative to David. And so I think she is directly alluding to that when she uses that terminology there. And, and Amnon would have known the story even better than she. He was older than she. He was the firstborn son to David. Tamar is a very wise and, and brilliant lady here because she, she sees the situation exactly as it is and she spells it out to him. She frantically pointed out the horrible consequences if Amnon carried out this rape. First, it violated the laws and the customs of Israel. And, and in effect, we read the law there in Leviticus and the customs of Israel. Even though, yes, you go far enough back in time, you discover Abraham was married to his half-sister. But that wasn't something that, that God encouraged. And, and now the law forbids that. And so the custom of Israel opposes that as well as the law. Secondly, it would destroy her future. She will be ruined for what her, her life would intend, be intended to be as princess of the land, as David's beautiful daughter. And thirdly, it would make him the crown prince, heir to the throne, a pariah in his own land, and by implication, odious to his own father. Well, unfortunately, he listened to none of that logic, none of that reason. As we read in, in James, when, when lust conceives, it brings forth sin, and it just seems to be like a fire, almost like unstoppable fire. 
he wasn't going to be dissuaded. And so Tamar, desperately grasping for something, says, please speak to the king, meaning their father, for he shall not withhold me from you. She's trying to convince him that just hold off, talk to David, and he'll legitimatize this. We can be married, and then we can do this. She's grasping for whatever she can get here because this is in direct violation to what she just told him, that this was against the law of God and against the customs of Israel. So how could it be legitimatized just because David hears of it? Is he really going to allow his heir apparent to marry his daughter, his son marry his daughter. Is he really going to allow this to happen? Well, I, I, you know, I don't think she was bothering anymore with logic. She was just trying to persuade him by any means that she could to stop and to let her go so that he would cool down and she could escape. And, and she knew that if she was able to get away, she would be okay because her father would not allow such a marriage and would protect her. He just, she just wanted to get out of his reach by whatever means she could find. So she'd promise anything, offer anything to prevent this greater evil. Unfortunately, even though the passage uses or says, the passage says, if you go back to uh, the first part of the chapter, uh, Amnon protests that he loves Tamar. Well, love is not the appropriate word here. Uh, not only is it not, uh, of course, God's love, it's not even true human love. It's just pure, raw lust that he has for her. And so he would not be dissuaded no matter what she argued about or what she offered. And it was all to no avail. And so he, Scripture says, he was stronger than she. And so he raped her. Satan had so blinded the eyes of Amnon that he was willing to jeopardize his entire future to satisfy the desire of a moment. And if that isn't the story, of humanity. It started in Eden, jeopardized all that God had promised and all that God had warned because it looked so good. David had been forgiven of his great sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, but he is now beginning to reap the fruit, the consequences of that, because whatsoever you, show, you sow, you shall reap. In spite of the fact God forgives sin, the reaping still occurs. So let's read on at verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great, great hatred. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go away. But she said to him, No, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had on a long sleeve garment. The literal Hebrew here is multicolored. It's the exact same word that refers to Joseph's coat of many colors. She, she had this. It's pas, P-A-S in Hebrew. For, this, uh, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes, then his attendant took her out 
and locked the door behind her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long sleeve garment, which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. In a moment, in just a moment of time, two lives were totally destroyed. Two lives were totally destroyed. There was no redeeming the situation for either one of them in terms of the damage that had been done to both. Once Amnon had at least momentarily satisfied his lust, the loathsomeness of what he had done flooded in on him. Now, I don't mean the spiritual loathsomeness. I don't think he had any spiritual acumen at all. He was far from God, the God of his father. But the loathsomeness in terms of society and, and his own thoughts about uh, what he had done. He had just had sexual intercourse with his own sister. Suddenly it slammed in on him. And he was repelled by the thought. And he turned his, his, his rejection on her. And, and he, as if she were the, at fault for the whole thing. And he rejected her and demanded that she leave his quarters. In verse 16, it is clear that she saw the calamity that now faced her. In a moment, a royal princess who would seemingly have everything to live for and, and a tremendous future ahead, probably marrying a, a prince in the land or, or marrying the, the, the ruler of some other land and being a queen, maybe. Her future is destroyed. She has no future. Amnon's violent rejection of Tamar would make the whole episode look like it was her fault, that it was her doing. After all, he was a sick man, and he couldn't defend himself against this rapacious woman. That's the way he would make it look, of course, and that's what she feared would be thought. Now, we don't know uh, how much she cried out for help. Maybe she didn't cry loud enough. Certainly, she, maybe he muffled her voice. We don't know, or it could be she cried out loudly. But, you know, he had sent all the servants away, but one, he hadn't sent all that far away because he will summon him. And so he probably had instructed his close bedchamber type guy to, to go, not go too far away, but, and if you hear a woman scream, ignore it. You know, he probably thought ahead and made those plans. And so he called his Chamberlain, whatever you want to call the individual, to throw Tamer out. To have to be thrown out of a place by the man's bodyguard, Chamberlain, butler, whatever you want to call him, it makes it appear that she was guilty of some sort of shameful action and impropriety. Having her thrown out puts the guilt on her, as far as others, because he will testify Oh, well, you know, I had to throw her out. Notice the words that uh, Amnon used to his chamberlain. He said, throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Why would you say such a thing unless you felt she was a threat? Lock the door behind her. And it just drips. I mean, the statement just drips with implication that she had done something immoral or wrong or inappropriate. To emphasize the tragedy of what had just happened, 
The author points out that Tamar had been dressed in this, this multicolored garment that was characteristic of all the virgin daughters of the queen, uh, of the king. All the princesses of the king who were virgins wore this multicolored garment. It was that emblem of virginity in the house of David. Characteristic of the mourners of Israel, Tamar then put dust or ashes on her head. She tore her tunic that symbolized her virginity and returned to her apartments wailing, we're told, crying aloud concerning the tragedy that had just befallen her. I mean, think about it for a minute. If you could, I think all of us could conceive of a situation where our life would be forever altered for the bad without the possibility of being reconstructed. And she was young. It's very possible she was still in her teen years and to have her life destroyed at such an early age. It's a great tragedy. Well, it didn't take long before her full-blooded brother, same mother, same father, Absalom, heard of the rape. And here we find a man of, of great sensitivity and, and great concern for his sister. <laughs> well, his less than comforting words are given to us in verse 20. He instructs her to be silent about what has happened because, after all, he's your brother. <laughs> what is he saying? saying, don't bring shame in the household. I mean, he's heir to the throne. We don't want to doubt somewhere that there's incest in the house of David. So shh, don't tell anybody. And then he says something so sensitive. He says, do not take this matter to heart. Don't take this matter to heart. Talk about ignorance and insensitivity. I mean, she's been violently ravished leaving horrible emotional scars. Her virginity has been stolen, which will probably make her unmarriageable, and her reputation has been destroyed. And he says to her, don't take it to heart. You know, cool it. It's okay. It's not that bad. It's just totally destroyed, so what's the big deal? Well, she could no longer live with David's other virgin daughters because she was no longer a virgin. And Absalom was her only protector, so she went to live with her brother Absalom. But you'll notice what it says about that. She moved into her house and lived there desolate. Desolate. The meaning of the word is devastated and deserted. There was no one left for her. The extreme tragedy of that word can be highlighted if we, this passage doesn't relate to this event, but it uses the same word in Isaiah chapter 62, read a couple of verses there where God is talking about, about Israel as, as a country. And he says, it will no longer be said to you, forsaken, Not, nor your land will it any longer be said, desolate. And that's the word used her, here of her. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married, for the Lord delights in you and to him your land will be married. As, and for, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so God will rejoice over you. I mean, the contrast is so great here between the first half of verse 4 and the rest of this passage I just read of being forsaken and desolate and how God turns that all the way around and Israel is made the joy as she's married to God. And 
in Tamar's case, the first is her lot, the latter, although she can know God and walk with him, but in far as this life's activities are concerned, the latter would not be her part. Verse 21 tells us that David heard of the matter. He heard of this crime. And all it says was he was very angry. He was very angry. It doesn't say that David did anything about it. We're not told, there's no evidence whatsoever, that he decided to disinherit Amnon and say, you are no longer heir to the throne. I'm going to make Kiliab the heir to the throne. There's no evidence that he demoted him in some other way. There's no evidence that he even chastised him, called him in and read him the riot act. No evidence that he even did that. And I don't think he did. For the reason that I mentioned to you last time, that it is said of his son Adonijah, who rebelled against him, that David never said, uh, never at one, any point challenged his son or corrected his son. It wasn't in David to do that. The law is clear. The sentence for incest is death. But David does not feel that he can impose that sentence upon his son, even if he had wanted to, because he himself had been absolved of the sentence of death for both murder and uh, adultery in the case of, Ash of Bathsheba and Uriah. And therefore, he would have felt it would have been hypocritical to impose such a sentence upon his own son. Whatever the case, the very fact that there's no evidence that David chastised Amnon in this helps us understand that David flunked fatherhood. David had known God to be his father from the time he was young, but it doesn't seem he ever learned how to take that model and build it into his own life. As a result, Absalom began to plan on how he was going to deal with his brother Amnon. The scripture says that he spoke neither good nor bad to Amnon. In other words, he pretended like nothing had happened. If I were Amnon, I'd have been worried. I'd have been worried for two reasons. Not only had he violated Absalom's sister, but Amnon stood in Absalom's way of getting the throne of Israel, which we know Absalom desperately wanted and would later attempt to take in rebellion against his father. And so Amnon was in a precarious position for those two reasons. Did he understand that? Probably not. He was a fool. Obviously, he was a fool for what he had just done, demonstrated that clearly. With Amnon dead, the only person that would stand between Absalom and the throne in terms of a normal inheritance of the throne was the second of David's son, whose name was Kiliab, or he's also called Daniel. Uh, and, and he is never mentioned again. So we can either assume that Daniel died somewhere along the line here fairly soon or, or disappeared or something. He doesn't seem to play any role. And so with Amnon gone, it would seem that Absalom had a clear shot at the throne. David was beginning to taste the bitter fruit of his own horrible example to his family. Doesn't seem that he learned from God's example of what it was to be a true father. To be a true father, you discipline your sons, your daughters, and it doesn't seem David learned that. Unfortunately, what we discover is David applied affectionate indulgence 
to his sons rather than godly discipline. And what would the result be? Of David's four oldest sons, three will die tragically. And none of them will inherit the throne. And as we know, the one who will inherit the throne will be the son of David's marriage to Bathsheba. As incongruous as that might seem, as inappropriate as that might seem to us, it illustrates God's mercy. And that God, I mean, Solomon was not responsible for what had happened between David and Bathsheba. And he was a man called by God who would serve God. And apparently, although he was probably not disciplined any better than the others, he would learn better somehow. It happens, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how it sometimes happens? That some people will grow up and will have understanding of how they should be, in spite of the fact they weren't taught it by their family. So it would be for Solomon. Well, next Sunday, we'll look about what happens next. Things don't improve a whole lot as we move through the uh, chapter.